It is time to answer some big questions about our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light, lasers, optics, and fascinating tech news. Each episode, you'll hear groundbreaking stories from around the world about the fibers of science, from its triumphant past to its audacious future. Brought to you by Photonics Media. You're listening to All Things Photonics. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. In today's episode, the 100th anniversary of a revolutionary discovery made by an often unsung hero. And we'll also get the chance to talk with Walter Burgess. He's the vice president of Power Technology, a company that's changing the way we experience movies. Starting off today, here are the top headlines. Trump Hootinger, a high-tech division of the laser and machine company Trump, has acquired HBH Microwave out of Germany. A camera developed by the California Institute of Technology uses picosecond imaging technology to take photographs and videos of transparent objects at speeds of up to 1 trillion frames per second. Researcher Sergei Karinstev and his team at Kazan Federal University recently published a paper in Optics Letters where they detail the design of a new type of metal lens capable of imaging beyond the optical diffraction limit. Researchers at Hokkaido University, working with colleagues in Japan to develop a photosynthesizer design that could use low-energy light effectively, developed a design that made the rare earth element europium shine five times more brightly than any previous design. And finally, Nagoya University researchers, in cooperation with Asahi Kasai Corporation, have succeeded in designing a laser diode that emits deep ultraviolet light, according to research published in the journal Applied Physics Express. Today we're talking with Walter Burgess. He is the Vice President of Power Technology, a manufacturer of custom and standard laser products that's been helping to introduce innovative projection technology to movie theaters. He's also written a couple features for our magazine before, which we'll be discussing today. And he's also a member of the Photonics Media Advisory Board. Walter, thank you for joining us. I wanted to start off by going over the history of your company. Power technology was started in 1969. The laser was invented in 1960. So your founder must have had an immediate interest in the technology. How was he able to break into the industry and create your company? I'm sure that starting a business, a technology business in rural Arkansas wasn't easy in 1969. He was very early into the laser business. So that uh, is one of the unique things about power technology. We are one of the oldest laser companies in the world, uh, and we're pretty proud of that. But he had a background in telecom and came back from California working for TRW and Pacific Silicon, or Pacific Semiconductor, I believe it was, in California. Came back home, was looking around for a job, went to a a little company about 40 minutes from our headquarters uh, that was called Blunt and George. And Blunt and George was making lasers for sewer laying. And lasers were used to set the pipe grade. And they wanted to make sure all the liquids flowed downhill, so they had to lay the pipes angled downhill. And so he went to Blunt and George, and they 
they had a laser there. They had a power supply that was the size of a bread box uh, hooked to a very large car battery from the 1960s. And uh, all that big cabling was connected to the uh, laser tube. And they were complaining quite bitterly about the uh, laser power supply and how short of time that it would operate. And so he sort of looked it over and, you know, knowing electronics the way he did, he thought, well, this is a problem I can solve. And so he literally went home uh, that day and on his kitchen table, uh, he constructs, constructed a high voltage power supply that fit very neatly into the back of the laser tube and eliminated that big monstrous power supply that they were buying. So he took this power supply back to Blunt and George and they very skeptically looked at it because it was a tenth of the size. And they said, well, we'll call you back in six weeks. And so about two weeks later, they called back and uh, they said, we want to place our largest order ever. And they proceeded to order six units. So that was a, sort of the origin of starting the company building product on the kitchen table. And the photonics industry is very coastal, but Somehow your company has thrived operating out of Arkansas. How have you made that work? Oh, that's an interesting question. So uh, we actually haven't been only located in uh, Little Rock. We actually had a German office for quite some time. We closed that office in 2013 and and brought everything overseas uh, after acquiring a German laser company. So we've we've got global roots. In fact, we have a very strong practice of exporting lasers all over the world. I think last year we exported to 37 different countries. When the average U.S. company exports to one country, that's a, a pretty stark comparison. But uh, surviving here in Little Rock has, uh, has been a blessing as well. You know, we have a strong aerospace industry here, and we're able to bring a lot of great uh, talent from that aerospace industry and, and help them with jobs here at another technology company. Power technology remains privately owned. Has this provided advantages for you as a company? I tend to think so. Um, you know, we're a closely held corporation, and, and all the owners work here within the company. So it's a very strong leadership team that is vested in the success of the company. It's pretty clear that we operate differently than a publicly held company. Publicly held companies tend to manage for the quarterly number or, you know, the stockholders benefit. And they act on very short-term financial goals. Uh, with a privately held company, we get the opportunity to have a little longer runway for our technology goals, for our business goals, that we can invest over the long term. And as long as we're convinced that it's a, a good investment, we can stick with that strategy you know, more than a quarter, and we can actually benefit from that, whereas a, a publicly held company, they might be very quick to react on, on quarterly numbers and might abandon a project or, you know, fire a whole team of people. We're, uh, we're blessed that we don't have to manage to such short-term goals. So maintaining that long-term strategy and keeping everything in-house, has that been a benefit to company morale? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into that morale question. Uh, one of the advantages that we think the employees see here is they can really see and feel the impact of their work that they're doing every day. 
if they have a good idea, management can adopt it, and the employee can see that idea implemented. And that's pretty rewarding to them. The contrast there is if you're, you know, one person out of a thousand people, you know, you you could be a small cog in a very large machine and never really see the the impact of your work, especially if you're you're here and your manufacturing's in Bangkok, Thailand. You know, you might not see the effect of your work. And so here being all together in one building, we tend to think of that as an advantage. Power technology works in several intriguing industries from the military to the cinema. Are there any applications you find interesting that you think your company will put more emphasis on in the future? Yeah, there's some that I can talk about, some that I can't. You know, we're actively uh, looking for different niches to apply our technology in. Some of the product that we're going to introduce just in a week or two here at Photonics West is some lasers wrapped around high technology operation, I'm sorry, high temperature operation that are for harsh environments. So we're going to introduce a water-resistant laser that should be rated for IP65, which is an environmental standard that resists dirt and water. And if the testing goes well, we might even have that introduced at an IP67 rating, which allows it to work underwater up to a meter in depth. So it'll be like the smartphones. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll charge less than the iPhone. Yes. You mentioned you'll have a technology on display here pretty soon. Is there any research you're currently working on that you would like to share? Um, not at the moment. Uh, we'd like to hold those things close to the vest until they're, they're introduced publicly and the engineers have done all their great work. You've been on our company's advisory board since 1996. That sounds like a long time. I, I'm not aware. I haven't been counting the years, but that sounds like a long time. Yeah, 23 years. Wow. What fundamental changes have you seen in the lasers and photonics research or its industries in the last 20 years? There's been a couple of major trends that I've seen, especially over the last couple of decades. Uh, we've really seen bulbs in their different forms be replaced by more efficient light sources in photonics. So we've seen incandescent bulbs replaced by LEDs. And of course, that's something that all of us see in our homes or in our business. You know, we've seen that over the, the years here uh, at Power Technology. Even though we're not an LED company, we've witnessed that. More personal to us, we've seen those bulbs uh, and lamps be replaced by specifically laser light sources. And that's what's happened in that cinema industry is you've got a really expensive bulb, you know, a $1,000 light bulb, being replaced by a very efficient, very cost-effective laser source. At the same time, you know, you're eliminating that $1,000 bulb replacement cost, but you're also seeing a reduction of energy consumption. In the case of the RGB laser technology, we're producing the same number of lumens on the, the movie screen for exactly 50% less electricity. And so it's saving a lot of money on electricity, and that's one of the trends that we've seen is, is just bulbs in general being replaced by lasers and other photonic devices. There's been this global trend towards more efficient technology. Would you say the main force for innovation in the laser industry is a desire to lower costs or raise efficiency? 
I think there's more of a cost battle than an efficiency battle. I mean, we made great strides in efficiency when it was an incandescent bulb being converted to a fluorescent bulb. But the difference between a fluorescent bulb and an LED was only a few percent more efficient as far as electricity goes. You know, I think we're at the point of gains will be like 1% or 2% for a new technology. If we get big gains again, we're going to end up with perpetual energy and you know, light being generated from no energy. So we're we're getting really close to about as efficient as I think that it's going to be uh, when it comes to general illumination. So do you see innovation in efficiency hitting a plateau? I do for general illumination. In the laser industry specifically, I think we've got some, some opportunities that still exist. Again, if we look back at the last couple of decades, we saw, especially with argon-ion lasers starting with these argons at 488 nanometers, we saw those as some of the first big and bulky gas lasers that were replaced by semiconductor lasers or a, a frequency-doubled cavity, laser cavity. I remember going to the UK a couple of decades ago, and there was a microscope manufacturer, and they had... Uh, under the table was this laser box, and it was a huge box under the table. And their main request was, can you make this laser box go away? Can you make this argon laser smaller or more efficient? And, of course, today's technology, we have semiconductor lasers and, and other frequency-doubled lasers that are able to produce hundreds of milliwatts of light at 488 nanometers, you know, sort of to back that statement up a little bit more, we also see that helium-cadmium lasers, you know, which were a meter-long laser tube, uh, we also see that there's 442 and 445 nanometer semiconductor lasers available now that can at least match the wavelength, maybe not the beam quality, maybe not the spectral quality of a HECAD, but we do see that this big, expensive, energy-intensive laser has been replaced by a more efficient semiconductor laser. You're working in 3D printing, which we know is a very broad field. Yeah. But I wonder if you can speak to what you've seen as far as the evolution of 3D printing and what you expect the future to look like. Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'm really personally excited about 3D printing. I'd love to have one at the house. I haven't bought one yet, but uh, maybe Christmas, you know. Maybe I could get one for Christmas some year. Right. But... Um, when most people think about 3D printing, they're really thinking about the entry-level devices. You've got this liquid-based solution that you aim a 405 nanometer laser at, and it uses photopolymerization to make that liquid a solid. Or they've got this 3D material, it's called SLA, that's fed on a spool. And that's what most people think about when they think of 3D printing. And honestly, I I don't see a lot of change coming to those entry-level technologies. I do see a lot of change coming to a more commercial or more industrial 3D printing technology or two. And those are the areas that I'm personally really excited about. If we think about 3D printing that's driven by a, a DLP chip from Texas Instruments or some sort of projector technology. Uh, this technology exposes an entire area to an image at one time. Basically, replace the light bulb in this projector 
with a 405 nanometer laser or an LED, and you can uh, actually print a whole, let's just call it 12 by 12 image in one flash, and then you can change the image and then re-expose that liquid. And so your layers, you know, are each a different scene on the on the projector. And it's a pretty powerful technology that power technology is even banking on some of the future of that. We've introduced a laser light source that produces 10 to hundreds of watts of 405 nanometer laser, uh, laser light, and it's perfect to marry into those kinds of projectors, whether it's a lithography or a 3D printing application. You know, that same laser can be used for both applications. As 3D printing advances, we're seeing its application in a number of industries. It seems like the sky is the limit. Yeah. So 10 or 100 years from now, what are your wildest projections on how far this technology will go? Well, I mean, you mentioned the sky's the limit, and that's actually one of the primary drivers for the secondary 3D printing that I think is going to be you know, impacted quite heavily in the next couple of years. We're seeing metal-based powders being melted and fused into single components in the aerospace industry, in the Boeing aircraft, and probably even in the Airbus aircraft and in military aircraft. We're seeing titanium powder and other powder-based metals being fused into these big monolithic components or even small monolithic components. I think that's going to have a huge impact. It's going to reduce the weight of the airplane. It's going to increase the strength of the aircraft. And I think we're probably even going to see big monolithic structures, let's call it the size of a car body, eventually manufactured with this 3D stentering of metallic powders. And I think that's going to revolutionize the transportation industry primarily and, and other industries that can use the same technology. You wrote a feature for our magazine back in 2015 where you said a lot of companies were trying to capture the success of the movie Avatar. I'm curious about the crossover between the movie-going experience and the technologies that are shaping the theaters. The younger demographics seem to think that the movie theaters are dying and that we're all going to stream in the future anyway. What could you say about the innovation efforts taking place and how that might affect a society losing interest in going to a theater? You're making me feel really old with all these questions going back into history. But yeah, that, that was an interesting article I co-wrote with uh, Christopher Hessen. I hadn't thought about that in quite a while, but that's, that's an interesting article. So there's, you know, it's true that the streaming services uh, are increasing in popularity. I don't know that uh, I agree with the social consensus that maybe movies are dying. If I just look at 2017 and 2018, movie ticket sales, there were actually more tickets sold in 2018 than in the previous year. And so, you know, that might actually lend credibility to the fact that movie theaters aren't dying, uh, like people are happy to report. While these streaming services are becoming popular, there's really something that they can't match. You know, no matter how, how much the resolution improves, no matter how much the display or how big your TV gets, you just can't match some things you get from the movie. It's, it's really, going to the movies is about more than just a picture and some sound. It's really about experiencing a common bond and a common experience with other 
call them like-minded individuals, other fans. Uh, when I'm in a movie theater seeing something from the Marvel Cinematic Universe or a Star Wars movie, the newest version on opening day, uh, I know that I'm probably sitting next to someone who feels like I do. They're a diehard fan. So when we cheer or laugh or cry all at the same time, there's a real sense of community, and that's reinforced. So I don't think you can get that sort of community feeling from streaming something or even virtual reality, which is also something that people are saying is a threat to cinema. You know, I don't think putting on a set of goggles and experiencing something by myself has the same emotional impact as when I'm sitting in a, a theater next to a guy in a Wookiee costume. You know, I think <laughs> I think there's a more sense of a community in theater or in, in movie theater. And I really don't see that people are going to stop seeking that human desire for connection. I'm curious what you think about when you go to the movies. Are you able to just watch the screen or are you going in thinking about the projectors and the technical aspects? I'm the absolute worst person to go see a movie with because I, I tend to sit there as an engineer and not as a uh, audience member. So if I can forget to be an engineer, I tend to enjoy the movie quite a bit. But, you know, I start to think about the sound or I'll hear this channel of the sound is out, which happened last year. I went to a movie and somebody had blown a speaker and it was just ruined the movie for me. But um, so I'm thinking about stuff like that. If I don't enjoy the movie, if the movie doesn't captivate me then I'm going to start thinking about, hey, I wonder what projector they're using in the back. I wonder if it's bulb-based or laser-based. So I'm the worst person to go to, to a theater with, but I still have my fan moments and do enjoy going uh, with my family. It takes a good story to keep you out of scientist mode. It does. It takes a good story, and, and that's the core of every movie. If, if the story's not good, everything else is irrelevant. You wrote another feature for us in our December 2019 issue where you mentioned two laser projection technologies, RGB and phosphor. You said RGB is vastly superior, but that phosphor is less expensive. Yeah. Where would you say that leaves the privately owned cinemas who maybe don't have the funding of the larger chains? Do they end up getting bought out? No, I don't think so. And I think we're always going to have the independent or the smaller theater chain. Uh, they really do fill a niche in the market. But the, the financial terms that make buying a laser projector a good financial value are the same for a big theater chain versus a small theater chain. The only advantage that a big theater chain would have would be just a volume purchase. You know, so they might actually save a few extra dollars. Whereas if it's a mom and pop theater, they're only going to buy one or two. So, um, you know, the RGB projectors have a home in the, you know, larger projector auditoriums or the larger screen auditoriums that require larger projector. And the economies that drive that purchase are driven by the size of the bulb and the size of the projector. If someone's got a smaller screen, they're more likely to go with the cheaper phosphor technology just because there is a threshold for RGB laser projection where it makes sense, and it doesn't make sense with a smaller screen. So there is that breakover, and, and there's sort of a home for each technology. But if someone's got a small screen and they're really dedicated to high projection quality, 
like, say, an Alamo Draft House has a superior view of what a film should look like, they might actually have an RGB projector for a smaller screen. So a small local theater that maybe only plays independent movies over a couple screens would do better going with the phosphor. Yeah, I mean, it's more likely it's going to be a smaller screen with a smaller town. And, you know, if the theater owner is just happy to have a picture on the screen, they're probably most likely to have a phosphor-based projected image up there. And it's going to look okay. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with a phosphor image. It's just an okay image. But the real true movie aficionado that just wants the best of everything, they're really going to gravitate toward that RGB laser technology. Have you seen the movie Gemini Man with Will Smith? I have not got a chance to see that yet. I've heard a lot of the buzz, but I haven't uh, haven't witnessed it firsthand. It uses all of this expensive technology from its cutting-edge cameras to its motion capture technology. If a movie like that uses all of this expensive equipment, how does that affect the supply chain of smaller theater companies? You know, there's different versions of every movie that come out. You know, I can't take the file, the computer file that's for an IMAX screen. I can't take that to that small mom-and-pop theater and show the exact same computer file. It's called a DCP. I can't take that DCP to another projector and show it uh, for security reasons, but also from a technology standpoint. The IMAX has a different width and height ratio for the screen, just for one example. So because there's different file formats for the given film, some theaters will show that with all the bells and whistle technology that you mentioned, while other theaters will bank on that buzz, if you want to use that word, they'll show the film, but it won't have uh, all the bells and whistles showing. A lot of cinemas have shifted from xenon lamps to laser projectors, but a few have still hung on. Overall, are these numbers trending upwards? Well, based on a recent article in your magazine, my friend Susie Beierstorff um, cited a figure that said that 20% of the 200,000 movie theaters in the world have have upgraded. So 20% of all movie theaters is a pretty big number. So I would say, yeah, we're, we're going to see that conversion and we're going to see more conversion. Will there be you know, people who trail in the technology and hold on to their bulbs as long as they can. Yeah, I mean, we humans, we're sort of adverse to change. And I think there'll be those customers that just don't want to change. Matter of fact, there's plenty of movie theaters that aren't showing movies in 2K resolution or even 4K resolution. There's plenty of theaters still using standard high-definition projectors. So, you know, just sort of a a technology curve that just won't go away, for example. What are your projections five years from now? Yeah, I think there'll be no more bulb projectors being sold. Uh, There'll still be legacy equipment. But many of the movie projector manufacturers have already publicly said that they're not going to have any more product introductions that use a xenon lamp and a mercury lamp. So... I think that has already happened in a lot of cases and probably will happen in more uh, projector manufacturers in the near future. You wrote that 
Initially, companies tried using these large lasers for individual color, but that it proved cost-effective to shift to several smaller lasers per color. But these smaller lasers emitted a very small amount of wattage. It was like one watt per laser. Yeah. As technology improves and is mass-produced, sort of like the smartphones, do you see a place where large lasers could come back at a more affordable price? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if we go back to the first commercial laser projector uh, light sources, you know, we had a company called Laser Light Engines. And they were the trailblazer. There's a bunch of really smart people there. They had some backing from IMAX uh, and some other companies, some investment. And they blew through $25 million, and they proved one thing. They proved the path that we as power technology shouldn't take. And so their pathway was to make very large lasers that produced uh, green light and then another large laser that produced blue and another large laser that produced green. And so they showed us how not to do it and saved us you know, $25 million. So we're very grateful for them for being the trailblazer. And a lot of those people are still in the industry and still contributing at other companies. So that was very worthwhile for the industry, just not good for their particular investor. But what we found out from that experience is we need to use a lot of small lasers. And fortunately, there was a need in the market to continue to produce red lasers, for example. So you mentioned streaming technologies earlier. Well, a lot of the red laser manufacturers were negatively impacted by the rise of streaming media because what that did is it eliminated the need for red lasers and infrared lasers to drive disc players. Blu-ray, not Blu-ray, but the older DVDs were based on red and infrared lasers. So they had capacity to build red lasers for projection because another technology had basically done away with the mass market for red lasers. And so we've already seen the commoditization of red lasers. Uh, They were already commodities for disc players and optical media storage. But those were all low-power lasers. We're really needing high-power lasers for projection. So one watt per red laser, I think, was something you mentioned a moment ago. And we're now double or triple that from today's state-of-the-art technology. In the 2015 article, you said that initial hurdles for these lasers wasn't the technology, but the regulations on the technology. What about today? What are you still overcoming? Well, we're pretty fortunate in that the people who write the regulations have listened to the experts in the industry and modified and adapted the regulations. A lot of the regulations that we were worried about back then have been tuned and changed a little bit to make a safe product possible in the market. So um, there's still only, you know, maybe one or two regulatory hurdles, and they really only slow down the technology. They don't prohibit it, but we can still get to market. We just have to jump through more regulatory hoops to make sure that we're filling out all the right paperwork, for example. Lasers are highly regulated. Here in the U.S., we have CDRH, which is the Center for Device and Radiological Health, and they do a very good job of regulating lasers and suntan beds and a lot of other technologies to make sure they're safe for the public. But they're 
from the U.S. side, they're they're trying to harmonize with the regulations overseas in Europe and China and other countries. But we've been very fortunate. They've been very open to the, the proof and the evidence that's been shown. And a lot of those regulatory hurdles that you mentioned, they have been modified and have helped the technology find a good home in the market. So just to be clear, these regulators have confirmed that tanning beds are safe to use. Well, <laughs> they regulate the technology. They don't regulate the use. But yeah, the same people that are in charge of tanning beds are in charge of laser light. So it's uh, one of the oddities of the U.S. government. But yeah, they do a good job of regulating those light-emitting products. I want to ask about Avatar again because the sequels to that movie have been delayed several times. Do you know if that's a result of technology not being available either in the movie industry or in cinemas? You know, I I can't expect to uh, read James Cameron's mind, but uh, I would suspect that those are more creative challenges that are delaying the movie, whether it's um, you know special effects uh, or or some other creative challenge. I would suspect that those are what are slowing down the introduction of those movies. Uh, I would publicly volunteer James Cameron if you need some help on the laser side. I'm your guy. Here I am. James Cameron, if you're listening, thank you. And I have so many questions. But no, I don't, I don't think the, the projection technology is slowing that down. Maybe some technology on his end? You know, I think so. But, you know, I can't say what's in Mr. Cameron's head, but uh, he has publicly come out and said, if I can paraphrase, he has said, boy, I wish I had laser technology when Avatar 1 came out because it didn't really fulfill my creative intent. Had I had laser technology, laser projection technology, uh, my creative vision would have been realized in, in its entirety. So he is very much a champion of the technology. Well, that is quite a plug for the industry. Based on the high costs and challenges you wrote about for 3D projections, when do you see a shift occurring where these types of movies become more mainstream and less exclusive? You're talking about the laser movies becoming more mainstream? Yeah, and whether that means less expensive for average moviegoers or just a more enjoyable experience. Yeah, I think um, I think we're at that inflection point. I think 3D movies aren't going anywhere. They're going to be around for decades to come. But the laser-based technology has really enabled 3D technology to be enjoyable for the consumer. You know, right now you go to the theater, you put on these dark glasses, and it's a very dark picture, and you get some eye strain. That comes about because only 20% of the bulb light is reaching your eye. So if you introduce laser technology that has six primary colors and 3D technology built in, you can actually get a very bright and very vivid 3D movie with 80% of the light getting to your eyes. So I think the the hurdles there that people sort of have an aversion to 3D, I think those have been eliminated with laser projection. And I think in the next couple of years, you're really going to see that fully populated at all the 3D films. You know, there'll still be an upcharge, perhaps, for that premium experience. And I would expect that because that's just part of the the cinema industry. We need to pay for equipment somehow. But I think the audiences are going to be thrilled with that new, four times brighter, vivid 3D image. 
When do you expect that to be commercially available? Uh, I think it's available now. You know, it's just not widely installed. If you go to a Cinemark, you know, usually one or two of the screens, the big screens, are adapted to project 3D images. And so I think when you start to see those auditoriums have this bright, vivid laser projection, not only laser projection, but this specifically the six primary color laser projection, you know, I think the audience is really going to appreciate the difference in performance. That's Walter Burgess. He's the vice president of power technology. Walter, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much. It's been an honor to be here. Today's episode is brought to you by the book Light, an introduction to optics and photonics by Judith Donnelly and Nicholas Massa. You'll also find other books about photonics technology, posters, apparel, and more. Visit photonics.com store and use the coupon code podcast for a 20% discount off your first purchase. This story was originally published on photonics.com back in November of 2019. 100 years ago, Elmer Imes published a revolutionary paper on physics with a very catchy title, Measurements on the Near-Infrared Absorption of Some Diatomic Gases. And it was because of that paper in 1919 that we can be thankful for 1935. What happened in 1935? Well, first, let me back up. Imes was born in October of 1883 in the city of Memphis, Tennessee, the son of missionaries, and the oldest of three brothers. He attended elementary school in Ohio and high school in Alabama. Not much is known about him or his family. In fact, his story doesn't really start until the age of 20, when he received his bachelor's degree in science from Fisk University, a predominantly black university in Nashville. Imes taught physics and math at the Albany Normal Institute in Albany, Georgia after graduating, but around 1910, he returned to Fisk as an instructor and completed his master's degree in 1915. But Fisk didn't offer any higher degree, so Imes transferred to the University of Michigan to complete his PhD. At the University of Michigan, Imes worked in the laboratory of his advisor, Harrison Randall, designing and building high-resolution infrared spectrometers and detectors. Imes earned his Ph.D. in physics in 1918, becoming the second African-American to earn a Ph.D. in physics more than 40 years after Edward Boucher received his Ph.D. from Yale. There's no evidence that they ever met. That's Clark Atlanta University's very own Dr. Ronald Mickens. I am the distinguished Callaway professor, and I'm also professor of physics. Dr. Mickens is the leading authority on Elmer Imes and editor of the book Edward Boucher, the First African-American Doctorate, where he wrote an appendix essay dedicated to Imes. Mickens also studied under James Lawson. Lawson was one of the three black students Imes was able to send to the graduate program in physics at the University of Michigan. Remember that fact for later. In his essay, Mickens writes that Imes made a, quote, major impact on the understanding of quantum phenomena. From an experimental point of view. From an experimental point of view. Well, how do yes, you mean by that? What he did was, under the guidance of Randall, construct and improve on previous spectrometers. Secondly, 
he was able to carry out some of the first precision measurements of the rotational vibrational spectrum of hydrogen chloride, hydrogen fluoride, and hydrogen iodine. That's the Harrison M. Randall, an American physicist and mentor to Imes. So you can trace the lineage. Randall, Imes, Lawson, and now Mickens. Randall and Imes also carried out the first precision measurements of the vibrational and rotational spectrum. Imes's thesis work observed infrared spectroscopy of the diatomic gases hydrogen bromide, hydrogen chloride, and hydrogen fluoride. But most of his work was on hydrogen chloride. Then, in November of 1919, he published his groundbreaking study, something no one else had ever thought of. Somebody else would have done it. Measurements on the near-infrared absorption of some diatomic gases was published in November 1919 in the Astrophysical Journal. Then, that same month, Imes co-authored another paper with Harrison Randall called The Fine Structure of the Near-Infrared Absorption Bands of HCl, HBr, and HF. That's the same hydrogen gases from before. It was the first time that quantum theory was clearly shown it could be applied to radiation in all regions of the electromagnetic spectrum. But Dr. Mickens is a scientist. He deals with the empirical data, not the sentimental. I'm giving my interpretation, which I think is correct. Sometimes people have the opinion, okay, if there wasn't an Einstein, we would not have special relativity. That is not true. Mickens says that sort of thing just doesn't add up. I mean, if you look at the history of science, there's no evidence that if somebody didn't do it, somebody else wouldn't do it. It might have taken longer. It might have started out initially with a different type of interpretation. But I think eventually, just the work of Einstein, for example, the interpretation that we get now would have been discovered. Einstein was not the only person who was working on these things. He was just one, and he had a particular physical interpretation that really eventually caught on. But I, I, don't, I don't think that discoveries are inherently attached to a given individual. Discoveries are not inherently attached to a given individual. But what happens when the individual who makes a discovery also happens to be the first black person to do it. After all, we're dealing with scientists. Scientists look at things objectively. What you discover is that scientists are no different in their sociological or psychological interactions with other scientists than other people are. They interact exactly the same way. And as for the academic community, things were even worse. Schools like Princeton for a very, very long time did not admit blacks. And it was primarily because a great proportion of the students, undergraduates and graduates, were from the South. There was a very famous black mathematician, I mean, who had lots of sponsors, his advisors and others. Princeton University refused to allow him to come to the Institute for Advanced Studies and use their facilities, which at that time were on Princeton University's campus. A famous mathematician with sponsors who happened to be black, and Princeton said no. So what did Imes do so differently to get a break? To find that answer, we turn to Plato. Philosophy currently is dealing with exactly the same problems that Plato dealt with. Nothing has been answered in philosophy, finally. They're dealing with the same problem. In physics, or in science in general, 
there is not only a sense of progress, there is actual progress. So what's different about Imes' story is that science is inherently inspired by progress. One of the advantages of science is that independently of all of this craziness and human prejudice and all that kind of stuff, that you do get knowledge out of it, and this knowledge can be associated with progress. And when you make progress, regardless of race, the impact is transcendent. For Imes, that meant changes not just for the science community, but the academic community and the future of Black Americans. That's why we're grateful for 1935. In 35, Imes sent three of his students to the University of Michigan's physics department. And in large part, I'm certain this is because of his work. That's progress. Because of progress. Science is distinct, and it is different, in that you can indicate explicitly progress. So you would have written that article regardless of what race or background he had, because just because of his work. That's right, yes. Imes' study of high-resolution infrared spectroscopy provided the first detailed spectra of simple molecules and opened the field of studying molecular structure through infrared spectroscopy. The study showed the first accurate measurement of the distance between atoms and molecules. Before Imes' papers were published, scientists were skeptical whether quantum theory applied to the emission spectra of molecules. Up until the work of Imes, there was doubt about the universal applicability of the quantum theory to radiation in all parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Some held that it was useful for atomic spectra. Some held that it was applicable for all electromagnetic radiation. That's physicist Earl Plyler in 1974, read by Photonics Media's associate editor, Joel Williams. Hello. Imes' research was recognized as important by colleagues and was frequently cited, but he faced a challenging obstacle. Imes wanted to teach at the graduate level, and the only faculty positions open were at black colleges and universities, and black colleges still didn't offer graduate programs. So after receiving his PhD, Imes left academia to work in New York State for various engineering companies. During that time, his work resulted in four patents for instruments for measuring magnetic and electric properties of materials. Imes found few opportunities to advance in the industry, and in 1930, after a decade in the industry, he returned to Fisk University. At Fisk, Imes served as the chair of the physics department. He revised the undergraduate programs and planned his own graduate program in physics. Although he didn't publish any more papers, Imes did remain active in the research community. He corresponded frequently with other researchers and equipment designers and continued some of his own work in infrared spectroscopy. Imes dedicated his career to training students and conducted research with his students at Fisk. His research lab was described as, quote, a mecca for those who sought an atmosphere of calm and contentment. By the late 1930s, Imes' health was declining. He returned to New York, where he would work until his death in September 1941. His work was just one of those things in the long march towards a better understanding of the physical universe through experimental work and theoretical interpretation. That'll do it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our guest, Walter Burgess. Our engineers are Alan Shepard and Brian Healy. 
Thank you most of all to you, our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a story or just want to reach out, you can email us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Subscribe wherever you may be listening and never miss a new episode. You can also subscribe to this podcast on our website, photonics.com slash podcast, where you will find episode notes, links to the complete stories you heard, and some interesting side stories that didn't make it in. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. You've been listening to a Photonics Media production. Music